This episode of the Holly Fueled Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by Inside Tracker. To save 20% off your Inside Tracker purchase, visit the link in the show notes, which is insidetracker.com slash holly20. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Hollyfield Nutrition Podcast. I am Holly Samuel, and I am your podcast host today, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified personal trainer and avid runner. Today's episode has been highly, highly requested in terms of the topic of sleep in endurance athletes, because I think a lot of us know how important sleep is. A lot of us struggle with it sometimes and may not know exactly what to do or why it happens um, when it comes to fixing our sleep. So I wanted to get a sleep expert on the show. Um, And Dr. Bender, Dr. Amy Bender is just that. She is absolutely fabulous. She is an athlete herself and a sleep um, expert, PhD researcher. Um, And she talks actually a lot about some of her own research um, in this episode too, which I think you guys will very much appreciate. I can't wait until it's published. Um, Very cool research coming out. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode and learn how to improve our sleep. Hello, Dr. Bender, and welcome to the Hollyfield Nutrition Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. People have been asking me to do a sleep-related episode forever, <laughs> so we are going to cover all of that today. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, and um, could you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your background, like where you're located and what you do? Sure. I'm based in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I'm originally from the U.S. Actually, I did my master's and PhD at Washington State University in Spokane and then made my way up to Canada to do a postdoc at the University of Calgary. And there I was working with Canadian Olympic team athletes and optimizing their sleep. And currently I'm the director of clinical sleep science at Cerebra, which is a sleep technology company focused on bringing in lab sleep technology into the home so that you're able to uh, do a sleep test in your own home environment, which is good for sleep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that sounds like you'd probably get more realistic results maybe too, than bringing someone out of their element into a lab. Absolutely. Yes. It's, I mean, we know even when you're sleeping in a new environment, let's say you're at a hotel, uh, your brain, part of your brain is actually more awake when you're sleeping. And so we know that sleep can be different when you're in a new environment. Oh, that's really interesting. It's so funny. I, um, I told my, I actually told my dad, I was interviewing you and my dad's, um, been a a corporate pilot my whole life. Um, he travels internationally and yeah, I, I don't know how he does what he does because sleep is important to me and he doesn't get a lot of it. So he was like, Oh, I can't wait to listen to that episode, (laughs) even though he's not a runner. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. No. Yeah. I, uh, I do a lot of kind of travel plans for different teams, different athletes. Uh, So yeah, we can talk about jet lag if you want at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds great. And I mean, what got you interested in like sleep and performance? 
Well, I was an athlete growing up myself. So I always was playing sports. I had four brothers growing up. Um, so I was always outside playing basketball, playing tackle football. My brothers would make me be the goalie so they could practice their soccer shots. <laughs> so uh, I, I've always been an athlete and I finally kind of settled on basketball and I ended up playing college basketball, uh, was inducted into the Hall of Fame as well and kind of continued my athlete, my interest in athletic and sport, even after I was um, done with college. And so I took a mountaineering course. I did some mountaineering. I actually did an Ironman um, nice. in 2009, uh, kind of a one and done deal, but uh, and now I have three kids. So it's a lot more challenging to uh, train and do all of that. But I really wanted to combine my interest with sport in whatever I was doing. And so my aunt at the time invited me out to her sleep lab and showed me what it looked like when a participant, you know, a patient was hooked up with all of these different electrodes across the scalp, under the eyes, looking at muscle activity, looking at breathing, leg movements. And so she showed me kind of how that translated on the screen. And I just was so fascinated by it that I ended up volunteering at a sleep lab, ended up later getting a job at uh, Washington State University at a sleep deprivation lab. So it was a research lab and then wanted to kind of continue in that area uh, in sleep. So I got my master's and PhD. And then after the PhD, I really wanted to come back to athletics and combine the expertise of uh, my passion for sport and my knowledge of sleep. And there was really a need too. I mean, playing college basketball, I, my coaches would tell us, you know, get a good night's sleep. And that was kind of the end of the information. Although at the time we had you know, we had a nutritionist, we had a strength and conditioning coach, we had different lectures, but no one would really ever talk about the importance of sleep for performance. So I knew there was a need in this area and got lucky enough to do a postdoc at University of Calgary, where I was working with um, Olympic athletes and have continued that work, uh, working with professional teams, college teams, Olympic, uh, Olympic teams, et cetera. Oh, wow. That sounds great. I mean, and things I heard too, you said Ironman triathlete basketball hall of fame, mom of three. So it sounds like you probably PhD. It sounds like you probably know what it's like to be sleep deprived <laughs> and also <laughs> how important good sleep is. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is so true. I mean, just being a parent, uh, there's some research to show that it takes six years to get back to pre-pregnancy sleep levels. So <laughs> there is definite sleep deprivation going on. Um, but I think, I mean, we know the importance of sleep. We know the relationships with different chronic diseases. So if you're not getting enough sleep, you're more at risk for some of these uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, we, we, we do need to prioritize it, but I think 
in the end, our brain compensates for that sleep deprivation. Now, of course, our performance is going to be impacted, our decision-making, our mood. But knowing what I know when I was working these sleep deprivation studies where we brought people into the lab to sleep deprive them for up to 62 hours, so two, <laughs> two full nights without sleep. And you look at their recovery sleep and it's so much different. There's just much more deep sleep occurring to recover from that type of impairment. Um, and of course we saw the impact on cognition and mood, et cetera. But I think um, people don't need to be freaked out necessarily if they, if they are going struggling with a period of sleep deprivation or struggling with poor quality sleep. I mean, we definitely want to get that checked out and we want to figure out solutions as to how we can mitigate the impact. But um, our brain does compensate for sleep deprivation. Yeah. And I imagine the topic of sleep too, it's kind of like almost nutrition where, like you said, your coaches were like, yeah, yeah, sleep, it's important. And it seems very simple. And it's like a basic thing that a lot of people experience or struggle with, but it, it can also be very intricate uh, once you kind of take a deep dive. So I'm excited to talk with you about um, all things sleep today. And yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you know, what's supposed to happen um, when an individual, you know, goes to sleep or has like a normal, you know, circadian rhythm. Um, can you just kind of describe what that looks like in terms of like hormones, time, sleep cycles, so that um, the audience has a good background of what's uh, supposed to be happening? <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. So we go through different cycles throughout the night. And so sleep is primarily composed of non-REM sleep, so non-rapid eye movement sleep and REM sleep. So REM sleep is when we're primarily um, dreaming. So when you wake up from a dream, you're typically in REM sleep. And a lot of that sleep is occurring in the last half of the night. But we cycle from non-REM to REM in about 110 minutes, 90 to 110 minutes. So we're always going from non-REM to REM. Um, during non-REM sleep, we kind of start in light transitional, technically, you know, stage one sleep, um, and then move to a deeper stage of sleep, stage two, which takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night. And then we get into deeper stages of sleep, like stage three, that's where growth hormone is being released, tissues are being repaired our neurons are actually shrinking to allow cerebrospinal fluid to, to flow through. Um, and then we'll get into the REM sleep and we kind of fluctuate between these different stages, but in general, we go from non-REM to REM in 90 to 110 minutes. And, um, that cycle occurs about four times, maybe five times throughout the night, depending on how long you're sleeping. Um, when it comes to different hormones. So as we, as the day goes on, we have adenosine buildup in the brain and adenosine is kind of that sleepiness, uh, hormone, um, that's related to the more you've been awake, the sleepier that you are. And when we sleep, we actually, um, the adenosine dissipates across the night. And during the night we have, um, melatonin. So melatonin is produced from the pineal gland, uh, about two hours before bedtime, melatonin starts to get released when there's darkness occurring. 
And then it peaks typically around four or five in the morning um, when we're least alert um, during the night. And different things like light help regulate our circadian rhythm. So melatonin is a marker of our circadian rhythm. So if we're blasting our, our eyes with bright light right before bedtime, that's going to reduce melatonin. It's going to potentially make it harder to fall asleep. You may wake up more during the middle of the night. Um, and so light helps regulate our circadian rhythm. So light in the morning is important to help get us good quality melatonin at night and overall good quality sleep at night. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want me to dive more into. Um, oh, there, uh, when we think about sleep, I like to think about it in terms of three key elements. So the first element is quantity of sleep. So we want to make sure that we're getting at least seven hours as an adult. And for athletes, we think we need more. So if you're an endurance runner training for a marathon, you've just had a long run. It's likely that you need more sleep to recover from the impact of the physical and cognitive demands of that activity. Uh, quality of sleep is another important key element. So typically uh, the National Sleep Foundation recommend or their definition of sleep quality is defined as being able to fall asleep in less than 30 minutes, waking up no more than one time per night for less than 20 minutes, and then sleeping 85% of the time while you're in bed. So if you are falling asleep in less than 30 minutes, that's a good sign that you're getting good sleep quality. Waking up once during the night is completely normal. Um, but as long as it's not a prolonged awakening, um, it's still considered having good quality sleep and then making sure that you're not in bed awake. Uh, so if let's say you're getting eight hours of sleep, but you're in bed for 10 hours, that's not a good thing because you're not, um, primarily sleeping while you're in bed. So that's another sign. So that's another sign of good uh, sleep quality. And then timing is another element as well. So quantity, quality, and timing. Timing has to do with, are you sleeping more in line with your biology? So for example, are you a night owl where you like to go to bed later, wake up later, or are you an early bird where you like to go to bed early and wake up early? And ideally we wanna sleep in line with our circadian rhythm. Um, but there are challenges with that, especially if I'm a night owl and I like to go to bed late, my melatonin is being released later um, related to that, but I have to get up early for training. I have to get up early for work. I have to get up early for school that can be problematic. So our night owls really can struggle because of the fact that they're kind of misaligned with when they should be sleeping. But there are different things, there are different strategies such as getting lots of light in the morning, blocking light at night, potentially even taking melatonin that can help in that situation. Oh, that's super interesting because it's so true. Like if you're kind of programmed maybe a certain way but then you have to fit into this box <laughs> of your schedule. Um, that's good to know that that's 
a thing that people can struggle with. It's not just, you know, you being like a bad person or a lazy or anything like that. It's just how you're wired and that there could be potentially a way to help you gradually ease into that schedule. Yeah. Um, one of, one of my biggest pet peeves is, um, when, certain coaches are, and I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, any types of, uh, of practitioners out there under the bus. But, um, when, when they make the comment that, oh, this athlete is just not being disciplined because they can't get up early for this type of training. And they're just, they just need to be more disciplined, disciplined. They just need to go to bed at 8 PM to wake up for a 6 AM training. And I'm thinking to myself, no, it has nothing to do with discipline. It has to do with biology. So when you're an adolescent, the peak in evening type is around age 19, age 20, you know, right around the age of college when you would be in college. And the fact that they're not able to get to bed on time is probably more related to their biology in that their melatonin isn't being released for, you know, four hours later. So no wonder they're having an issue, um, Mm -hmm. getting to bed on time. So I don't think, yeah, I, that is one of my pet peeves when, um, when people, I guess, believe that it's all about discipline, they should just get to bed earlier. Well, no, I think it's more about biology. Yeah. It's like, it's not a character trait. It's just biology. And in college, you're so right. Like if that's how those, that age group is feeling, and then you put them all into a building, like, of course, everyone's going to stay up late because it's just going to be an environment that caters to the biology too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's really helpful to understand what's normally supposed to happen and what sleep looks like and what's technically like within like the healthy parameters, like you kind of discussed. Um, so in terms of like, you know, talking about endurance athletes, um, what are some of the things that you tend to see people struggling with, kind of in that longer distance marathon, probably people who are out of college, like more twenties, thirties, forties range when it comes to sleep. Well, we actually did a study in London marathon athletes. So we had 950, we had almost a thousand participants kind of take our survey where we looked at the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, which is one of the questionnaires I helped uh, refine and develop. And we were interested to see what are the differences in running ability? Like, are there any differences in sleep between running ability? Um, So good for age people who qualified for that versus uh, just kind of recreational um, runners. And uh, we're also interested in looking at uh, gender differences, like male, female. Um, Are there any differences in sleep when it comes to that? And also age, we were curious about age. And we found that actually um, women had uh, less total sleep time. So they had less sleep quantity compared to men. And that was even controlling for age. So it seemed to persist across all age groups and across uh, different running ability as well. And we found that, um, they were actually waking up more during the middle of the night as well. Um, and then when we looked at 
uh, fast runners. So good for age versus not, we found that, uh, those types of runners were more likely to wake up during the middle of the night as well. And then overall, when we looked at the data, about a quarter of these participants needed to further um, get their sleep assessed from a sleep medicine physician. So we found 24% had a moderate to severe sleep problem. Um, yeah, which is one, which is a study, and it's timely that I'm on this podcast because we're just submitting this paper, but um, really interesting because there's not, not a lot out there on, um, sleep in, in runners per se. I find that super interesting. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm not sure if this is part of like the study results that you discuss, but I mean, I just have so many light bulb moments going through like, okay, it's that age. It's that it's females versus males. Um, and it's kind of waking up in the middle of the night, I mean, those are things that I see in most of my clients. I mean, most of my population who probably falls into that um, kind of category, you know, in terms of, um, you know, their age and their gender or their sex and whatnot. Um, and I mean, something that I see often too, kind of that overlaps in that category is that there's a serious issue with underfueling. Um, like people just aren't people, but a lot of the times more women, um, you know, who are runners are not fueling their bodies well enough to support their training. And I'm sure that that carries over into sleep for sure. So I'm just, I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> interesting. No, I wonder, I wonder if there's something to, um, potentially low blood sugar during the middle of the night, uh, waking mm -hmm. someone up. Um, and if that could be related to the sleep maintenance problems, um, that's one thing that comes to mind that could be related to fueling. Um, mm -hmm. another thing that comes to mind that could potentially explain this is pain. So mm -hmm. muscle soreness could be waking people up in the middle of the night. Um, I think women in general, uh, and we saw this with, we did some work in curlers, who are a kind of a similar demographic, I would say, to recreational marathon runners, um, because they're juggling so many different things. They're they have a full time job, um, you know. They may have a family at home that they're having to take care of, and then they're trying to get in their training as well. And so sleep can kind of go by the wayside a little bit because there's just so much that they need to fit into that 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm even thinking like just the other things that would be related to nutrition, like the low blood sugar, the more muscle soreness at night, maybe because they're not eating enough to help them recover. Mm -hmm. Um, and something I wanted to ask you about too, is like, if that's happening, if we're not getting enough energy from food, I see a lot of runners, um, female runners, you know, kind of more relying on caffeine to give them energy. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering too, if that carries over into sleep quality. Mm, absolutely. Yes. Um, so we actually did a study where we looked, we were using our device at home and we, we had people wear our device for 20 days. And this is, this is, you know, a clinical polysomnographic device. So it's not as seamless as a wearable, you know, like a a ring. a ring or a <laughs> device, et cetera. Um, but 
with that information, we're able to get just more accurate, more sensitive information. And we found that people who drank caffeine too close to bedtime um, ended up impacting sleep quality and ended up impacting next day performance. So we're able to link it with next day performance. Um, so it sounds obvious, but I mean, a lot of results in the research are kind of mixed when it comes to caffeine, but um, just something to keep in mind that we want to probably limit our caffeine, probably don't want to drink caffeine after noon if possible, um, because it can impact the quality of your sleep and the quality of your recovery. Now, I mean, if, if you're doing a marathon, of course you can, um, drink as much caffeine as you want potentially, because it's only, it's this one special event that you're training for. But I would say to limit that when you're just, um, in preparation for that event. Let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor for this episode, which is Inside Tracker. I love having Inside Tracker as a sponsor of the podcast. I have been using Inside Tracker for, I don't even know, three, four years now. Um, they have just been such a key cornerstone to me understanding more about my own body and being able to help my clients on a more deeper level live healthy athletic lives and reach their athletic goals. Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. Inside Tracker provides personalized health analysis and clear recommendations, plus an action plan on how to live healthier longer. And they calculate your biological age, the rate at which you're aging compared to your chronological age, as well as ways to lower your biological age via their algorithm. And the thing I love the most about Inside Tracker is that they give you recommendations on things you can control to optimize your health, like nutrition, uh, supplementation if you have deficiencies and need a little bit of support there, workouts, and other lifestyle choices. And I really love using Inside Tracker as a way to just check under the hood, you know, see how things are running um, when things are going well. And also if I'm not feeling my greatest and then be able to identify the root cause of why that is happening and put together a plan to feel better for myself and for my clients. So if you want to save 20% off on your next Inside Tracker purchase, you can visit the link in the show notes. Yeah. And I also see it, it can be an appetite suppressant. So then people are eating enough when they're drinking the caffeine and then that's impacting their energy availability um, and kind of exacerbating the situation. And it's funny too, my, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, if you drink caffeine and you're having poor sleep, like I think some people can tell if the caffeine's kind of still in their system and they're like, oh, this is obviously why I'm not having great sleep. But is it true too that even if you drink caffeine and you don't think it's impacting your sleep, it still could be? Absolutely. So there was a study in, I believe it was uh, adolescence, and they had had the kids take an energy drink or drink an energy drink around dinner time, and they looked at their how their sleep was impacted and subjectively the participants didn't really see an impact they they thought you know nothing's going on here this is totally fine for me but when they looked at their sleep with uh eeg so brainwave activity 
They found that they were getting less deep sleep. They found that there were more awakenings during the night. They didn't actually find a relationship with being able to fall asleep. These kids were able to fall asleep very easily, maybe because they were sleep deprived, but, um, they, uh, they found more, uh, impairments with the sleep quality when they had that energy drink at dinner time. I think that's great. That's just, that's helpful to know too. Cause I think that's what I hear from people. They're like, I have no problem falling asleep. It's not the caffeine, but it's maybe not that part. It's the part where you don't have good quality sleep recovery. And then it compounds into your, your training abilities. Um, that's super interesting. So I mean, kind of back to, yeah, that endurance athlete that we know maybe tends to be more female um, than male, but I'm sure both struggle. Like if they're feeling pretty wired, but tired, like where they're just, you know, able to go to sleep, um, but maybe waking up a lot in the middle of the night or not having good quality sleep, what is likely like going on with their physiology? Like what are maybe some, some reasons this could be happening after seeing that kind of large outcome in the study that you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a challenging problem for sure. Um, I would say stress, stress, stress is, has a lot to do with it. So the stress of the training, the stress of the job, you know, those kind of things. So managing stress is really important and especially more during the day. I mean, of course we can do meditation and those uh, mindfulness close to bedtime. That's not a problem, but making sure that, that there's uh, stress management techniques going on. Um, so if there's a lot of anxiety, for example, potentially creating a time for worry during the middle of the day. So 10 minutes, have a worry journal, um, write about all of your worries, how you can potentially solve those worries and then close the book, put it away. You know, don't do that too close to bedtime. Um, meditation has been found to improve sleep quality as well. And I think that can help reduce stress. Um, but also I think having techniques to help you fall back to sleep. So it's not, uh, these, these times are inevitable. I mean, if you're a human being, you're going to be woken up during the middle of the night. And so having a routine to get back to sleep, I think is really important as well. So for me, um, I like to do a breathing technique. So if I wake up in the middle of the night, if, if my child wakes me up, um, I will do a breathing technique. So I'll start off with the four, seven, eight breathing. I'll breathe in for four seconds, hold my breath for seven seconds, and then breathe out for eight seconds. So it's called four, seven, eight. And I repeat that four times. And I guess the important part here is you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in because that helps activate the parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxation system. So I start with the breathing technique. Then I move to a cognitive technique. So I'll do the cognitive shuffle where I'll think of a word such as bedtime. I'll imagine all the objects that I can, starting with the first letter B, so ball, baby, bus, banana. When I can't think of any more, I'll move on to the next letter E. So eagle, egg, ear, and so on. And then hopefully by the time I get to the end of the word, I'll be sound asleep. But sometimes, you know, that doesn't happen. And in which case you want to get up out of bed 
and only return back to bed when you're sleepy. So you don't want to start being awake. You don't want to start doing emails, check, you know, work, even checking social media. You don't want to do that while you're in bed because you don't want to start associating your bed with being awake. And so I do that um, breathing technique. I'll move to the cognitive shuffle, which helps simulate what your brain does when you fall asleep. And it also occupies your mind just enough so that you're not angry that you're awake. And then if I've gotten through those two activities, I will get up out of bed, do a relaxing activity in low light, and then only return back to bed when sleepy. That's super helpful. And I think, um, I mean, this is definitely a question I want to ask. I think there's a lot of, I, I guess I would maybe categorize those as like low hanging fruits where there are activities that you can do. There are things that you can try to do to get yourself to adhere to a certain pattern or to fall back asleep. And I think that a lot of people maybe don't spend enough time or effort trying those things before they go for like the supplements or the gadgets or the things that they're like, just give it to me. You know, I just need it. And oftentimes to give these people credit too, they're, they're tired. There's a reason they're looking at these things. So, you know, decision-making might be kind of hard and it's easier to go for the gadget. Um, so when it comes to like those types of techniques versus, yeah, like the melatonin supplements, I mean, are there any like supplements or kind of I guess, quick fixes or easier gadget things to use for people that are as effective as some of those exercises or any of them like valid? Um, I mean, there are the easy way outs, but there's, um, there's problems with those. So for example, melatonin is, has been shown to help for those night owls. So Melatonin is effective at bringing the release to an earlier time. So exogenous melatonin, if you were to take that supplement, it'll help you kind of get to an earlier schedule. However, most people think of melatonin as, oh, it's going to help me fall asleep more quickly. But the reality of the research, it shows that it's not, I mean, it might get you five extra minutes, you know? So it's not a very effective um, tool when it comes to helping you fall asleep quicker. Now it's better than the alternatives out there if we look at some of the prescription hypnotics for sure. Um, But the effectiveness of melatonin is an issue. And the other issue is you don't know what you're getting. Um, There was a study looking, I think uh, 20 different melatonin supplements And they found that only 20% were within 20% of what the um, label was saying. And so 80% of the melatonin supplements on the market were just not accurate as to what, you know, with the five milligrams and the three, like you weren't actually getting that amount and there were contaminants in there as well. So melatonin is a tricky one. You have to get a good quality supplement um, to really help. And in most instances, it'll only help you with more of the chronotype shifting in preparation for jet lag, for example, is another another reason you can use that. Um, When it comes to other supplements, so I actually 
did a little bit of work into this because I'm on a board for a nutrition company and they're developing a sleep product. And they, I did, I did a literature review into this and there were three main ingredients that I really uh, felt were, um, you know, something worthwhile based on the research that had been out there. Melatonin was one of them. Um, but again, you have to be careful what you're getting. The other two supplements were related to magnesium. So magnesium is another thing we should be checking in runners because especially if you have a lot of that um, uh, stress cycle where you're just wired, uh, magnesium, if a lot of people are deficient, I think 40% of the population is deficient in magnesium and magnesium can be one that can promote good sleep quality. It can reduce anxiety. It can reduce that wired feeling. So magnesium is something to look into. And then the other one that I, that I thought was pretty good was uh, tart cherry juice, which I think can be good for runners as well, because it helps reduce the inflammation helps reduce muscle soreness, et cetera. But it also, because of those anti-inflammatory properties, it also promotes melatonin. Um, so you may get more melatonin, melatonin increase with uh, tart cherry juice supplementation. That's good to know. So melatonin, magnesium, tart cherry juice, if it's a good supplement, probably legit <laughs> to help you in some way. Um, and I, I, if people are listening to this episode who have listened to other episodes of my podcast, yeah, we talk a lot about supplements are not regulated by the FDA. It is the wild, wild west out there. You don't really know what you're getting. So the quality does matter. I always tell people, especially the athletic population to look for like NSF or informed sport mm -hmm. certifications. Are there any other third parties that you like for supplements from like a sleep standpoint? Um, yeah, no, I think those are, those are all, all good, uh, guidelines for people to check out. Um, I do like, I do like the thorn brands. Um, so those are pretty good. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a supplement expert by any means. And honestly for myself, um, I'll, I'll do magnesium supplementation, but it's not like a daily part of my routine to where I have like a melatonin, magnesium, tart cherry juice. It's more in those instances where, um, you know, I may not, I'm maybe during a stressful time, um, I'll supplement a little bit with that. Um, as far as other potential gadgets or, or yeah, it's, I, I always come back to the basics, you know, the basics can be so effective, even just getting lots of light in the morning can help, um, mitigate the impact of light at night and help improve sleep quality at night. So there's been some studies, even with office workers where they show those who have a window where they're getting some of that light exposure sleep better than those who don't. And, um, you know, getting outside is even more um, beneficial than just being next to a window as well. So yeah, getting, getting back to the, to the low hanging fruit um, is more important, but if you want to, we can dive into uh, wearable devices too, if you want to go there. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I think, um, just to kind of summarize melatonin, because I, I see melatonin supplementation 
in so many people I work with um, when we first start working together who are still having sleep issues. And they, I think the misconception is, oh, this will help me, you know, uh, fall asleep better, sleep better. Um, so you kind of mentioned that melatonin can be helpful if you are more of like the chronotype of night owl to help shift your uh, bedtime, so to speak, and then maybe using it with jet lag. So for those two instances, would you say like using it daily is better or do you need to use it on like an as needed basis? Like what's kind of the research behind um, the use of that particular supplement besides obviously we're assuming that it's a good quality supplement <laughs> in these instances. Yeah. Um, interestingly, people may not know that even just a low dose, so 0.5 milligrams has been shown to shift circadian rhythms earlier. Um, but I wouldn't go beyond three milligrams. And of course I'm a scientist, so obviously seek help from your general practitioner. Um, but, uh, with night owls, I mean, there's going to be that tendency time in and time out. So that would be more of a, um, potential chronic supplementation, uh, versus every so often, um, unless you have the flexibility for your schedule to go to bed late, wake up late, et cetera. And then I would say with jet lag, it's more preparing for that trip. So it's most useful if you're traveling East. So then you would want to start taking it probably three to four days prior to departure. And usually you want to take it around two hours before bedtime or so um, in, in both instances. And even, yeah, just that low dose 0.5 milligrams, um, up to three, no more beyond three, um, and start taking it an hour earlier, um, and try to go to bed an hour earlier if you're traveling East. And then potentially once you're at the destination, you could take it for a few days as well to help regulate that circadian rhythm and get more on that time zone. Gotcha. That's really helpful. Um, all right. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about the wearables, um, because yeah, whoop straps, the aura rings. Um, I think my Coros watch has like a sleep feature. Um, so yeah. Can you talk about like what wearables you see the most often, which ones you think are tracking like helpful data, how accurate they are, if it's good to be measuring these things or if it creates maybe more anxiety, like what are your experience with the wearables? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The anxiety thing is, is a real issue out there. And, um, we call it orthosomnia in the sleep field where you're just so obsessed with getting a good score, getting good sleep that when you don't get that, um, there can be a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, um, can even affect performance. So there's been some research to show that when they tell people you got a lot of REM sleep, when they actually, you know, they got a normal amount, they actually perform better They're, you know, they feel better, uh, versus the opposite when they say, you know, oh, it looks like you didn't get a lot of REM sleep. Um, people get worried, their performance is impacted, et cetera. So this is a real issue. And so I think all of us need to understand the limitations of these devices. I think that they're 
they're great at starting the conversation about sleep. They're great at, you know, what, what's measured can be managed. Um, so if we're not measuring something, it's hard to manage. Um, but we need to keep into consideration the limitations. And so primarily those limitations are these devices aren't very good when it comes to detecting the different stages of sleep. So if it says that you got uh 5% deep, I, I think one time my aura ring said I got 5% deep sleep and I'm like, I've never seen, <laughs> I've scored, you know, up to a thousand records of uh, looking at EEG and I've never seen that before. Same thing with REM. I think someone, or I, someone had mentioned to me, Hey, um, maybe it was, they had gotten 55% deep sleep. So the opposite problem, I'm like, Hmm, I've never seen that either. Um, so yeah, these devices have a real issue with tracking how much deep sleep you're getting, how much REM sleep you're getting, because it's not measuring sleep where it occurs in the brain. You know, it's, it's, it's ancillary. It's, it's far away from the body. And I, I do think these, sorry, far away from the brain. I do think that these devices are getting better. The technology is getting better. So very soon we may have um, a good estimate of deep sleep, REM sleep, et cetera. But for now, I think we need to keep that in mind that they're, they're good at telling us how much overall sleep we're getting. But when it comes to breaking down the sleep stages, they're just not quite there yet. Yeah. Like take it with a grain of salt. And I, I mean, I think that's important to mention, like, they're helpful. It's good to measure, but use your critical thinking skills. Like if you wake up and you feel great and it says something crazy like that, well, you know, if you're kind of checking the watch to see how well you slept without checking with yourself first, <laughs> um, it might be time to maybe take a break from the watch. Um, but that's helpful to know. Cause I think a lot, I see a lot of athletes kind of almost using it as a red or green light on if they're like, mm -hmm. okay to train. Um, you know, or yeah, it'll create anxiety. Like, oh, I'm really, really in the hole, like with recovery, even though I feel okay. So it kind of scares them, um, into doing anything productive to maybe help fix that. So yeah, I think that's, that's a good conversation to have. And, um, in terms of like the kind of good habits that we've been talking about, like if someone is, um, traveling, I think, a lot of times that's like a, you know, an opportunity where maybe sleep isn't as good, or if they do have children and the children's sleep patterns are changing, or if it's stressful, like what are some like good habits that people can get into to go to bed? Like what is a good bedtime routine? Is there anything that is, you know, effective that people can take away? Great, great point. Um, the bedtime routine is really important. I mean, we stress this with our toddlers, but um, for ourselves, we don't really think about it. So yeah. uh, it, it can start with a bedtime alarm. I think that's the first, first step. So set an alarm about an hour before you want to get to bed, uh, set that alarm each day. And that's kind of a signal. Okay. It's time for me to prepare my body and brain for sleep. So it's time for me to put away those electronic devices, um, potentially take a warm bath or shower, which has been shown to help you fall asleep quicker because when we sleep, our temperature drops. Uh, when we take a shower, our temperature 
um, temporarily increases and then it drops. So it helps us fall asleep quicker for taking a warm bath or shower. I even something like a to-do list. So there's been some work showing uh, they had one group write a to-do list right before bed. It was within the five minutes of bedtime. And then they had another group kind of journal about their day. And they found that the group who wrote the to-do list actually fell asleep quicker than the other group who was just kind of journaling, journaling about their day. And the mechanism behind that is probably just offloading some of those thoughts off of your mind onto paper. Um, so that's, that's a good tip you could incorporate in there. Um, having those breathing techniques, having those cognitive techniques can help. Um, and also even like stretching, um, you know, those kind of relax, reading a paper book, those kind of things can be helpful to really help prepare our brain and body for sleep and just uh, improve your ability to fall asleep quicker, but also improve your ability to stay asleep as well. Yeah. I like that too. Cause you can really take those things with you. Like if you're traveling or no matter where you are for the most part, at least some of them. Um, so thank you. Yeah. People do that. And then maybe consider the wearables, the melatonin, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but make sure you're not missing the low hanging fruits. Um, and then you also had talked about if someone kind of wakes up in the middle of the night, some things to help them fall back asleep. And then if they're not to leave the bed, um, you know, and not come back to it until they are more tired. Um, so if someone, you know, if that's kind of happening to people, like I hear from a lot of runners, they'll be waking up an hour or two before their alarm in the morning. So they're kind of like, I don't know if I should try to go back to sleep even though it's not going to be for a very long time, or I don't know if I should just get up early and sacrifice, you know, kind of a short night's sleep. Is there like a better or worse or anything that you have to say about like that situation? Mm. Um, I mean, it kind of depends. Like I would say, try the breathing, try the cognitive technique, get up out of bed. You know, if it's been an hour and you're just not uh, sleepy, I would say you could probably safely get up out of bed for the day, but then potentially supplement with a nap. So, uh, a lot of times that'll happen to me, you know, maybe I'll wake up four in the morning, try those techniques, can't really get back to bed. And then I'll just kind of have that in the back of my mind. Okay. You know, during my lunch break, I can take a 10, 15 minute nap, and that's going to help me get, get me through the day. Um, so yeah, I think people should, uh, in our research, we found that not too many athletes, Olympic Canadian Olympic team athletes were napping. And this is a huge area that people can take advantage of. So I'm, I'm a proponent of, of the nap. And I think it can really boost alertness, boost mood, boost, you know, performance, uh, when you haven't gotten that good night's sleep. I was going to ask you about napping. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, is there like a length of time nap that's more effective than others? Like obviously people's schedules probably impact this too, but just questions about, you know, is it 15 minute power nap, 30 minutes, two hours, what's too long? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, I kind of think of it in terms of two different types of naps. So more of a shorter opportunity, so less than 30 minutes, because then we're not getting into 
the deeper stages of sleep where we're waking up feeling groggy. Um, so if you do have a shorter opportunity, less than 30 minutes, you could probably set your alarm for 30 minutes. And then if you wake up, you know, if you fall asleep, wake up on your own before your alarm, um, you know, get up out of bed, et cetera. But then even for, uh, you know, some marathon runners and some endurance athletes that you're working with triathletes and such, there may be, uh, utility in more of a longer nap opportunity, um, to help mitigate those, uh, early morning runs, you know, so you may not have had enough sleep opportunity at night where you have an early morning training session. You could then potentially have more of a longer nap opportunity. So around 90 minutes. So getting the, the full sleep cycle, the deep sleep, the REM sleep. Um, but we don't want to really go beyond 90 minutes because then that could impact our ability to fall asleep. And we don't want the nap too close to bedtime. So I usually say around 4 PM, we don't want to nap after 4 PM. Um, so we need to keep that in mind too. And if it is impacting your ability to fall asleep at night, when you're napping, if you found that connection, maybe shorten the nap even, even more. Um, but there are maybe some people out there who just don't do well on a nap because it then impacts their ability to fall asleep at night. And we don't want that happening. Yeah, that's helpful. Cause I think everyone's probably experienced that where they like wake up and they're more groggy, <laughs> um, you know, than they were before they took the nap. So there's like different durations that are probably, um, more helpful for others, depending on what you're looking for. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, I could keep talking to you for another three hours, uh, with questions <laughs> about sleep. Um, but I hope everyone took some really helpful takeaways to just start implementing. If you're struggling with this, um, Dr. Bender, where can people find you and the work you do and information you put out? So I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at sleep for sport. I also have a website, sleepintowin.com. Um, and then also follow my work at Cerebra. So Cerebra.health. Awesome. Yeah. There's a lot of good info out there, studies and research you're putting out. Um, awesome. Well, I want to ask you my end of the podcast question, which I don't think I warned you for. So I'll be curious to hear your answer. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should be easy, but some people struggle. Um, so imagine you are like at the finish line of like one of the best races of your life, or you're finishing up like the best basketball game ever. Like what song would be playing to embody how you're feeling in that victorious moment? I would say, uh, we are the champions. Um, so yeah, definitely that, that song brings back good memories. Cause actually in high school, I played volleyball and we won state and that was like one of the songs that they were playing. So, um, yeah, I like the, we are the champions. No like one has said that yet. And I like, it's such a good one. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And hopefully everyone has a better night's sleep tonight with all of these tips. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for having me and sleep well, everyone. 
Dr. Bender, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was just so valuable. Oh my gosh, I had so many more questions. So maybe I will have to have her back on the show to continue this conversation when it comes to improving our sleep. Um, If you guys have been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast player. It really helps the show and I would really appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, are staying healthy, and happy running. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.